Well, I have to say, this morning we come to a 3,000-year-old text that it will not be difficult at all to see how it is relevant to our cultural moment. We have here a man of great power, abusing his authority, treating a woman as his property. It's a story of sexual misconduct, leading to cover-up, leading to murder. You know, last year's uh, Harvey Weinstein scandal opened the floodgates, something that needed to happen for a long time, where reports of sexual abuse and harassment came one after the other, people in power being exposed. And I know that uh, many of you have your own stories that recent events uh, perhaps have allowed you to open up and, and share. Many of us have seen that uh, what was exposed is not just the ugly and harmful behavior, but it allowed a safe space for things to be cried out and, and justice to be called for. But, of course, it taught us just as much about the abuse of power over the powerless as it did about sex and sexual abuse. Our passage this morning puts it in our face that this is not a new problem. And even more than that, it shows us that the Christian church has had an evaluation of this for thousands of years, that this is wrong. We aren't more you know, morally enlightened in this age than previous ages. We didn't all of a sudden click on to a new morality. No, God's perspective on this has been around. We can't get away from the fact that God's evaluation of what goes on here was judged as evil. In 2018, I think we're starting to see around us this emerging culture that this just shouldn't be tolerated or excused. And, you know, if we can just set aside maybe the controversial bits about how it's getting exposed or how those things should be dealt with in a legal system, and those are important issues. They shouldn't be sidelined, but they take more than a moment to address and require probably someone in a different type of robe to talk about. We can stand united to say that these things shouldn't be swept under the rug, approved of. And of course, that's not an exclusively Christian claim. I can stand here shoulder to shoulder with people of all faiths and not and say that. That doesn't give me the right as a Christian minister to say that that's a Christian claim. It's a human claim. But in 2018, we spent a lot of time talking about what to do when this happens, how to expose it, how to punish it. Our text wants us to go deeper. Our text calls us to look deeper below the surface of just responding to when it happens. It, It helps us to see we need to ask the question, what is enabling this? What permits this? What permits not just those people out there, but what permits us to go down this same path? Whether it's sexual sin or any sin. 
what is enabling us? For our cultural moment has only really offered the specter of being caught, the fear of this behavior being exposed, and the consequences that can, that can come through it. Scripture exposes something more significant. What we see here is not simply the consequences of getting caught, but the uglier effects of what sin does to us. But we don't leave it here. Because Scripture also provides hope. The seeds of hope are even here in this passage. Because Christian hope isn't just managing behavior through fear. Christian hope isn't just controlling things through legislation. Bridling in the behavior that wants to burst out of us. No, Christian hope points to redemption. To where men and women can actually be made new again. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about and to to explore. But let's come again to this passage and to hear it in a way that calls God to have it pierce our hearts. Will you join me in, in prayer? Father, we do thank you for your word. We do know that as we approach it, um, we not only see it as ammunition for those uh, guilty outside of this room, but we see it as a conviction in our own hearts. We pray that That will lead us not uh, to despair, but to repentance and to joy in salvation and the hope of being changed by your grace. Bless us now by this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two things right off the bat I want to notice uh, about this chapter. The first is how David-centric the chapter is. You know, there are several important characters that are here in chapter 11, but we're told so little about each of them. We don't have their point of view. We don't have Bathsheba's perspective. We don't know how she felt about David. We don't know how she felt about this encounter. We don't know her motivations. Likewise, Uriah, we don't know what he's thinking at, at each moment here. We don't know if he suspected anything as his he encounters David and talks with him. Well, the author is forcing us to focus solely on David. He wants us to pay attention to David's thoughts, to expose his heart and where David's heart is going. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the story spends much less time on the act itself and more on the consequences. I mean, the deed with Bathsheba is done at verse 4. And the rest of the chapter deals with the aftershocks of this. And that's, a, that's particularly significant because what we see in these early chapters is this sense that, that David feels as though he's gotten to a place where there will be no consequences. He's confident here at the start of this story that that what he does, he is in complete control of. There is a sovereignty about the way he carries himself. Look how he displays this control. Chapter 11 begins while David is in Jerusalem and all the other men are off to battle. 
And he takes a leisurely stroll. He sees a woman who is attractive, and he wants her. And he sends word to say, who is she? Tell me who who she is. One of his advisors comes back with the description. We're told in verse 3 who she is. As one commentator uh, said, her name is dangerously hyphenated. She's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, the Hittite, daughter of Iliam. She's the wife of another man. She's the granddaughter of one of David's advisors. David gets that news and he doesn't pause. He doesn't stop to ponder how wrong this is. She's not available. This is inappropriate. After being told who she is, the verbs, uh, the action verbs are quick. He sent, he took, he lay. David is in complete control. As we read this, from our perspective, we want to say, all right, God, now insert the little line that says, this is wrong. This is evil. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, but instead... What we have in these actions of David is not a little insertion saying it's wrong. Actually, what we have is more poetic and more powerful. The author, instead of inserting comments of an evaluation, actually brings up pictures of contrast, showing the great, uh, maybe like a like we would show a, a beautiful masterpiece, and then the cheap knockoff right next to it. Here we have contrast. Verse four. David is breaking the law as he's lusting after a woman who is taking a bath. But at the same time that he is breaking the moral law, we have Bathsheba taking care of the purification law, obeying faithfully. That contrast should strike us, and it should strike David, that he's watching somebody in this moment where his heart goes to lust, he's watching somebody who is obeying the law. seems to do nothing to him. He wants something. He takes it. The deed is done. The deed is done, and he sort of moves on without giving any thought to it. And from his perspective, it seems there are no consequences. There are no witnesses. In fact, did it really even happen? Nobody really needs to know that this this great figure, this hero of the faith, dabbles in sin. He can maintain from this perspective, his perfect image. Is that your experience with sin? You get lulled into thinking that it can be seen almost like a speed bump. Okay, we know that was wrong. Maybe we wince in guilt. But after a while, we see there really isn't any fallout, so we can just move on. We can go forward on our, on our path. That is really where we leave things in verse 4, but then verse 5. We get Bathsheba's only words in this entire account. I'm pregnant. And all of a sudden, all of David's supposed kingly power becomes demolished. He couldn't control that. Now there's evidence 
And at that point, you're just hoping that, okay, David, now confront your sin. Acknowledge what you've done, but he stays undeterred. David still believes he can control things. He doesn't need to confront his sin. No, now he moves into crisis management. And that really follows the rest of this narrative. David believes he can manage this crisis. First, he's going to try to manage suspicion. And then when that doesn't work, he's going to try to manage guilt. And then when that doesn't work, he's going to try to manage the standard. We'll quickly look at each of these. First, he begins by trying to manage suspicion. You know, adultery in Israel at this time was a capital offense. That means that during the time when Israel functioned as a nation state, that morality like this, the the transgression of adultery, would have meant that he should have been killed. Yes, Deuteronomy 17 says even the king should be under the law. In practical terms, maybe he could have gotten away with it. He was a powerful man. He had reached the heights of power. But David didn't want to run the risk, and he didn't want to ruin his reputation. And so he has to manage suspicion. The only one who would be suspicious here would be Uriah. Uriah is off at war. Uriah is battling the Lord's battle, and when he returns home, he's going to find that his wife is pregnant or has had a baby, and he's going to know that it wasn't by him. Suspicion. David needs to cover it up. David's plan involves inviting Uriah back from the front while things are still early in the pregnancy. And he brings him into the palace, first of all, having perhaps the most awkward conversation ever in Scripture. (laughs) You know, knowing what you know, this is really bad. We know that what David has done. And then he invites Uriah there and strikes up this conversation. So, Uriah, how's that war going? Things going all right with Joab? Why don't you, uh, why don't you go home and, uh, wash your feet? Wink, wink. A, youth, a euphemism that would have been pretty obvious. And what's Uriah got to think about this whole thing being called back from the front by the king? And now being sort of entertained awkwardly, being sent home to have relations with his wife. David's guilt pours out even more. Unfortunately, the text just, you can't see it in the translation, but, but David's guilty conscience is all over the place. The, the word shalom, which is, is peace, comes up three times. This is how the conversation would read literally. Uh, as, 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 uh, David says it, he's asking, about the shalom of Joab, the shalom of the people, and the shalom of war. That's verse 7. The man who has just done violence to this relationship and will do violence to Uriah is talking all about shalom. The thing is, he couldn't get this to happen. He couldn't get Uriah to go home, coming home from war to sleep with his own wife. Uriah disobeys. David sends a a present home to sort of check up on him to see if he's gone home. But he never made it there. 
if he could just get Uriah to sleep with his wife, then people would be able to argue that it was Uriah's baby. There was plausible deniability. Nobody would have been suspicious that David had done this. But David's control is thwarted. And the thing is, Uriah's disobedience, we might think, as a negative thing. He just didn't obey the king. But then we see in verse 11, no, we're up against our second contrast. Why did Uriah not go? Well, Uriah has an amazing reason. Uriah says, why should I go and enjoy my wife while my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents on the battlefield, fighting for the battle of the Lord? How could I go home to my wife and to my home when the ark of the Lord was in a field fighting for this battle for the kingdom of God? We see that image and all of a sudden we remember that David has been in Jerusalem this whole time at a time when kings should be going off to war. He's been the one staying at home, sending these men away so he could just indulge in his pleasure at leisure, feeling the ability to go after others' wives. That exposes David. This Hittite This Gentile convert seems more righteous than the king of Israel. You begin to feel David's frustration mounting. He's not getting control of the situation. Uriah, even after he tries to get him drunk, will not go back home to his wife. That frustration should start to break him. We're almost pleading, okay, now David, wake up and acknowledge your sin. Maybe we can get into situations like that. Our hearts plot evil. And maybe we don't acknowledge it as evil, but we know we're trying for our own way. We plan, and all of a sudden we get frustrated. How do you see that frustration? Do you see it as mere frustration? Do you see it as just coincidence that all of a sudden you're being stopped? I think we're invited to see it as the providence of God. It is a grace when God puts frustration in your life. Frustration that thwarts your control over things you're trying to manipulate. David doesn't see it as a grace. He's not acknowledging God here. He doesn't see it, perhaps, as the very call of God for him to finally confront his sin. No, David's attempt to manage suspicion has failed. Uriah's going to know. So David presses on. Now he tries to manage guilt. Now he realizes he needs to move to to eliminate the one person who could uh, make him guilty. He needs to call in a fixer. I've seen enough crime shows to know what a fixer is. The guy that cleans up everything, you know. Maybe the most prominent uh, Pulp Fiction, Winston Wolf comes in and just you know, wipes everything down and makes sure there's no impact on everything. Uh, those, those, uh, those specialists that destroy the evidence. The fixer comes in. He calls General Joab. Joab, make, make Uriah disappear. 
David sends him to the most dangerous front in the war. And the plan is for the soldiers to to move into this area of high conflict. And then in an orchestrated effort where everybody knows except Uriah, they will pull back. It's like when you volunteer for something and everybody sort of lines up to volunteer. Volunteer, please step forward. And everybody else goes like this and you're left alone standing there. That's Uriah. A sitting duck. And of course, what happens is what was planned to happen. He dies. The witness is now gone. Suspicion is gone. Guilt is gone. Did the sin really happen? If a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear. If a person sins but there's no witnesses, did it really happen? How easy it is to play with sin this way. Have you taken comfort in the fact that no one sees your sin? Have you taken comfort in the fact that you can do things and after a while realize there really isn't another shoe to drop? That myth of control. David is in that delusion that he's in control of the situation. But honestly, the irony in this scenario, I mean, is crazy. Let's just take a moment and think about his plan here. He wants to get rid of the one witness who knows about his crime. And so what does he do? He tells Joab. He tells all the soldiers. He now has a letter in his writing that tells about the entire plot. David is not in control. He is out of control trying to cover all of this up. Yes, the one witness is dead, but the, multipl- the witness is now multiplied. His secret is out. David could not manage suspicion. He couldn't manage guilt. So at last, he tries to manage the standards. Joab, the general, is concerned because this whole scenario has made him do a foolish thing militarily. He's put his soldiers in harm's way, and some of them have died. And so he wants to make sure that David isn't going to bring that guilt back around to him. So he sends a messenger to report very carefully, telling him that as you approach David, make sure he knows the code word, Uriah is dead. And Joab's messenger comes, and you can almost imagine this poor guy He's got to deliver this message about the boneheaded military move. And to a king who is a righteous king, whose whose every image says that he's going to stand for goodness and truth. And and the the messenger, probably wincing, thinking this guy's going to literally kill the messenger, says, people have died. It was a foolish military move. Oh, uh, yeah, and Uriah is dead. And then the response must have been baffling. David almost laughs it off. Verse 25, don't let those things trouble you. You know what? It's in war. Some things happen, some things don't happen. You know, people die. It's just the way it goes. But actually, it's worse than that. Again, literally, verse 25 says, he says to the messenger, 
don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let this be evil in your eyes. And that, of course, draws out the third comparison, the third contrast, because in verse 25, we get God's evaluation. Again, literally, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Don't let this evil, let this thing be evil in your eyes, David says. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, David's trying to normalize the sin. He's trying to, to control the evaluation of it. It's not that bad. Everybody does it. It's a normal thing. Nobody's perfect. Don't let it be evil. He's trying to control the message. But God's not a witness that he can remove. He brings a judgment that can't be managed. And here we begin to see the true point along the whole way of this narrative. David thought he was in control. He thought he was in control when he committed the sin. He thought he was in control when he was managing the consequence. But it was all a lie. He was never in control. He had yielded control. He yielded control to sin. He gave sin the power to tempt him. He gave sin the power to move him. He gave sin the power to change his perspective on what is good and bad. He surrendered himself to sin, gave himself over to it, and allowed him to take control, allowed sin to take control. That's the real take-home that we need to see here. We so find it satisfying in some ways to cast stones at those who do horrendous things, who abuse authority, who mistreat it. But we often miss what, what enables it. It's this view that we can sovereignly control the world around us. And we don't have to be in power to have that foolish perspective. That's something all of us need to be confronted with. Have we lived life as though we can move around without consequence? And if fires come up here, we can sovereignly put them out without ourselves or anything else getting burned. This is the truth about sin that we need to become convinced of. Sin is not just an act that happened in history that we can move on and forget about. It can't be wiped away. The danger isn't just in getting caught. Here, I think, out of all the good that's been happening in the Me Too movement, we have to say it just doesn't go far enough. Because all it is really doing is exposing and condemning. Yes, that's good. It needs to happen. But there will always be some who are going to risk that who will think that they control things. They can control it so that they can mitigate the consequences or they can avoid getting caught. There will always be people powerful enough or foolish enough to think that there won't be any consequences or that they can deal with them. But this text says there's more danger than just worldly consequences. The truth about sin is that it affects us. It changes us. More than just the judgment on it, it shapes us and molds us. It turns us into something that we don't want to be as we give ourselves over to it. You see this happening 
before our very eyes with David. David started this chapter even at the height of his reign and power and godliness, frankly. David has been known as the man after God's own heart. And here, now we see he turns into a man who thinks he can grab whatever woman he sees, who thinks he can then cover it up, who thinks he then can murder, who thinks he can take the life of Uriah and these good soldiers in the process. You see, sin isn't just that we may have external consequences. It's formative. It changes us. And sometimes we have to ask, can we even see what we're becoming? Can we see what it's taking us and making us into? It's dehumanizing us. It leaves us different. Indeed, this is not just, you know, good rhetoric. This is, this is quantifiable. Recent research into the brain's plasticity and the neural pathways have shown that that repeated stimulation to graphic images of sex actually changes how the brain functions. It physically changes the brain. Not only does it transform uh, our expectations, not only does it shape our behaviors, it actually physically changes our brains. Pornography is not just simply a harmless vice. And obviously it's not just a harmless vice. There's much we could say about its impact on the lives of, and the reality of sex trafficking and many other uh, ways that it wreaks havoc on marriages. But even for the one giving himself over to that or herself over that, it's making us a different person. It dehumanizes us. If that's you, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. You're not in control. You're giving yourself over to something that's making you into someone you don't want to be. Let's talk. The thing that makes this sin so profound, not just in the life of David and our own lives, is we see the aftershocks actually spill into the history of God's people and his kingdom. You see, if we've been reading the books of First and Second Samuel, we know that David is supposed to be different. He's not supposed to be like the kings of every nation. That's been the problem of kingship in general. In in, uh, 1 Samuel 1, they asked for a king. That wasn't the problem. They asked for a king like every other nation. That was the problem with Saul. Saul looked like the king that all their neighbors had. They wanted to be just like them. But they weren't just like them. They needed to be different. They needed to be holy. They were set apart for God. But here we see David falling into the same trap. He's doing exactly what all the other neighboring kings did. He's doing exactly what men in power have done since way before 1000 B.C. David was supposed to be different. Of course, the effects are not just on the sinner. The aftershocks are deep and wide. It's easy to see how these aftershocks affect Bathsheba and Uriah and the soldiers, but they go even deeper than that. You know, it's striking. I think sometimes we look at David's life and 
And we want to celebrate David as this hero of faith and gloss a little over the sins. You know, Scripture doesn't gloss over this. This is the pivot point in the narrative of First and Second Samuel. This is, this is the pivot point. And it's the pivot point not just in that narrative. It's the pivot point in Israel's monarchy. It's reached its height. Almost through the whole books, we've seen David and the monarchy reach almost its apex. But from this point on, we see the destruction of the monarchy. David's going to face this through the rest of 2 Samuel. It's going to be revolt from his sons, from various wives. It's going to be transferred to his son, Solomon, whose big problem is his many wives. The sexual sin and the, the violence that comes out of that starts to haunt and shape Israel's kingship dividing them because of his many sons from different wives, fracturing what was hoped for here. We can sometimes look at a close-up of Old Testament narratives and think, well, why didn't God just you know, show us that's wrong? Or why didn't God just bring a, a lightning bolt here and zap David? Well, if we read this story here and see how the decline of Israel's monarchy comes from this point, we see much more significant consequences than one single lightning bolt. The point here, we might feel the greatest despair in Israel. We might feel as though, man, are they just lost now? I mean, it wasn't just a couple of chapters ago that God made a promise that he would bless David in this kingship, that his his reign should last forever, and is it going to all be over with because of our sin? But at the point of greatest despair is where we see the point of greatest hope. Because God doesn't give up on Israel. The story goes on. God doesn't even give up on this office of king, which blows our mind. He doesn't give up on this idea of authority. For all that happened here and and all the best that David could be in representing humanity, God doesn't give up on that. He stays faithful. It's amazing. Rather than scrapping the whole plan of an anointed one, God sends a greater David. He sends one who had ultimate privilege, ultimate power. And though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be taken advantage of, but humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is profound amazement of Christ. God, in this plan of redemption, stays faithful even when we are faithless. And he brings in a Savior to represent us, to stand for us, so that while we were ugly and weak, he would redeem us. You know, the amazing thing about this passage that we see here is Not only is David the one who sins himself, but he stands, really, for humanity. He represents, in many ways, just like Adam represented humanity. In fact, the text brings that out. It says, you know, David looked and he saw someone was beautiful. In fact, the word's good. David saw something good and he took it. Adam sinned, sees something good, and he takes it. But at that very point of representation, 
when we think we get the best of humanity out there to represent us. God sends one truly who can redeem us. Christ will stand for us. Christ stands for us in such a way that he will take us when we're ugly and weak, while we're still in our sin. And he's not going to wait for us to have revival. He doesn't wait for David to clean his act up, for the monarchy to get things straight again. He doesn't wait for humanity to reform. He doesn't wait for us to call out and get justice on our own. No, he comes to us in our point of weakness and ugliness. And while we are still sinners, he redeems us. He saves us. He forgives us. And let me tell you, that good news of the gospel, that has power. We cannot dismiss it as simply a message of forgiveness. Listen to the power of this. It's that powerful word of forgiveness that allows us to let go of our attempts to avoid the sin. David wanted to do the cover-up thing the whole chapter. But it was when he finally got confronted of his sin and he knew the Savior that redeemed him could he finally open his heart up and actually confront the sin. Until you hear the message of the gospel, you are going to run from God. You're going to even run from your sin and try to manage it in some sort of way. But the gospel says you are forgiven now. Now that you have that freedom, confront your sin. Now that you know that God loves you and accepts you, acknowledge the sin and bring it before him. Bring it before him to change. That's true freedom. That's the freedom we see in David as he expresses this in Psalm 51. He can say, against you and you alone I have sinned, Lord. And then he can say, cleanse me. Wash me. Make me whole again. And that's really the good news of Christianity because it just doesn't leave us here. God doesn't just leave us in a dehumanized state, forgiven in the the ledger, but still deformed. No, when we turn to him, he gives us a new power. Sin deforms us. Grace transforms us. So that we can hear in Romans 12, That admonition, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the new life that God has for us. That's the the power of, of the gospel in your life. No longer giving yourself over to sin. But the response also isn't self sovereignty, it's now giving yourself over to Christ. Whereas the beginning part of Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We surrender to him. Where before we were surrendering sin and giving it control over us, now we surrender to Christ. And we ask him to mercifully transform us and mold us, take the deformed us, and make us into the image of Christ. I invite you now, as we come to this table, let's take a moment. Let's pray. And as we pray, I want to invite you to surrender control. Ask God to make your life a living sacrifice to him.
and let him renew you with his grace. Let's pray.